Better Call Saul Season 2 Episode 8 is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who have the adjoining offices with dentist chairs. I'm Rob Sestrini. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Hoping these walls in my side are soundproof, Rob. I'll let you figure out why. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> it's because I'm podcasting. That's why. I don't want anybody to hear me. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's yeah. good. All right. Well, Antonio, very excited to talk about episode number eight. Only two episodes left to go and only one episode left until the Better Call Saul finale here on AMC coming up in uh, but two weeks from tonight. Only one episode left until the finale, Rob. Can you believe it? That's insane. Uh, do you think this finale is going to have a really big cliffhanger that's going to make everybody upset, by the way? Is that what's going to happen on Better Call Saul? Boy, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> We don't want to go there. We're not going to go to Terminus or Sandpiper Terminus or some combination thereof. Is Are we going to see Mike throw down a hose on the road and then they, it's going to fade to black when, when that's the end of the season? I mean, there certainly could be some cliffhanger. I mean, Breaking Bad certainly did a couple of cliffhangers where you sort of like walked away from it. So again, we, we don't need to revisit the history of TV cliffhangers, but you know, certainly there are some major cliffhangers that Vince Gilligan has done before. Yeah, I just hope that there's, you know, we're talking about an AMC show here. I hope that there's there's been a lot of negative feedback about The Walking Dead and their cliffhangers that they're uh, they're playing with this this season uh, alone. So hopefully Vince Gilligan understood that the fans of uh, The Walking Dead don't like that. The fans of uh, Better Call Saul, you can end episode nine on a cliffhanger, but episode 10 better deliver. So I don't think we're going to end that way. We're we are certainly setting up some big stuff, though. And I think that this episode uh, more than any, maybe this season uh, did that. So I can't wait to get into that with you here today okay of course uh we're going to talk through everything here tonight we're going to answer some of your feedback as well and much much more here on the better call Saul post show recap if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode here down the stretch only two episodes left to go you can go ahead and subscribe to the podcast go to postshowrecaps.com slash bcs itunes Antonio, I was also thinking that maybe after the season is over maybe uh we could do some sort of like a feedback wrap-up show as well I'm really looking forward to that. I'm I love your, that on you right now. Yeah, I loved your feedback with uh, Zach Brooks on the uh, the House of Cards podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to and hoping they do a feedback on the Daredevil podcast we're doing here at Post Show Recaps. And I, I love the weekly Walking Dead feedback show. So I'm all about the feedback on Better Call Saul. Would love to do that. Yeah, because we're going to do a show the night of the finale. And then I'm sure that there might be some more stuff that comes out or that people start thinking about in the days after the finale. And so uh, we can go back and take a look further into uh, what we learned here in season two and what's coming up in season three. All right. So for you, we really had a lot of stuff going on here in this episode. Really, uh, Mike was doing some mysterious things. We don't really exactly know what he was doing. Uh, Jimmy was up to something in terms of what was going on with Mesa Verde. Chuck had a huge night as well. Yeah, Chuck playing uh, the salesman, if you will, playing a little uh, chicanery. Oh, is it slipping Chuck? Is that what we're getting here? Is this a, a classic Chuck kind of uh, a little bit of a sleight of hand, a little shell game by Chuck? I loved it. Well, did you feel like it was chicanery on Chuck Chuck Canary? 
Chuck Canary. I love it. Uh, no, not necessarily. I feel like everybody in the room, I thought the Mesa Verde guy, uh, I felt like he was pretty clear with what he understood what was going on here. I thought it was very clever. I thought there was a lot of cleverness to it. I thought it was a, it wasn't even a good cop, bad cop kind of pitch. It was very much a, uh, oh, yeah, th- this is happening and then this could happen. And of course, we're too old and don't worry about us, but old means experience and you might need experience. And I just thought it was very clever, very a very salesman-like pitch from Chuck there, and I think Jimmy would have been proud. No, that Chuck moment, and kudos to Michael McKenna, I think that might be the best Chuck moment in the series, and I don't think it's close. I agree completely. Long, like a, It's a landslide. That's uh, The Chuck Canary is the best moment for sure. Absolutely. And really just the, the pitch overall was really, really incredible. And, you know, you got to see just like a glimmer of sort of like an athlete where you end up seeing like, you know, they're really like way past their prime, but they do something that's sort of like really vintage. I felt like that's what we were seeing there from Chuck. Yeah, he's uh, that's exactly right. I think that he still got it. Uh, and I think that there's a little bit of that to be said. And it's funny because, of course, he collapses is the minute the performance mm-hmm. is over, uh, yeah. like probably an aging athlete would. It's was like that like Triple H after WrestleMania? Mania? Maybe, yeah. Like he left it all in the field and the fans were chanting, you still got it. You still got it. Like (laughs) he really did leave it all out there. I loved it. And in in true wrestling fashion, Rob, did you notice how he had his space cape on in his office and he sort of (laughs) heroically tossed it aside as he made his way to the ring? It was beautiful. Yeah, that was pretty good. So that scene was uh, really, really epic. Now, do you feel like that when you had Howard coming to Chuck's house and he said, yeah, you know, we lost the uh, Mesa Verde case or a client and Chuck's like, Oh man. And it felt like that Howard said that, Oh, Kim Wexler left and she's going with Jimmy, but he didn't say that they're not going into practice together. Chuck, Chuck thought that Howard didn't correct him. Was that an oversight on Howard's part or was it just Chuck jumping to conclusions? Well, this feels like story sync, Rob. I love it. Uh, I think that it was, uh, I think was that it that tactically w- incorrect, but immoral, <laughs> right? With long term benefits, uh, or wrong with short term consequences. I don't know. I actually think that that was a good move on Howard's part. I think but Howard was it is- intentional. Yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, I think so. He knows he knows what the score is because he in that great scene he has with Kim early in the episode, he sort of says smart move. You know, you're you're doing the right thing uh, for many reasons that to keep it separate. He knew that they were keeping it separate, yet he knew that Chuck wasn't necessarily seeing the distinction. Uh, and I think it was important for him either. He, I'm not sure if his end game was to get Chuck into that office, but his end game was at least to get Chuck engaged with keeping Mesa Verde, whether it was giving him all the information he needed or putting that suit on and going, putting the tights on one last time, Robin, getting his way to the ring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you ended up with Chuck wanting to come to the office and Howard's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. You know, I need, you know, everything to stay normal. I, I don't even think that Howard could have imagined that Chuck was going to go to such great lengths to come into the office and really make this pitch. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know that he could have that. I mean, beyond his wildest dreams, I'm not sure. Although I will say that's probably in a scene that we don't see. Maybe them driving over, for example. Hamlin either picks up 
right away with what Chuck's kind of uh, routine is there when he's going and giving him this sort of rope-a-dope uh, strategy, or uh, Howard knew uh, that this was pre-planned, that everything that Howard and Chuck do here is something that they worked out, because Howard starts chiming in like, oh yeah, you wouldn't want that, or oh, that's right, we, you know, we would have that problem, and so he's either ready for this routine, or it is something that they worked out, so he gets on board very quickly once Chuck is on board. See, So you think that this was sort of choreographed because I felt like that Howard was really a little thrown off in the beginning. I think he might have been a little thrown off in the beginning. I, I didn't sense that there was this moment where Howard has this moment of clarity where he picks it up and he says, oh, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Okay, I got this. I can move on. He did play it a little bit like he was thrown off in the beginning when he says we're old. He said something like, oh, don't, you know, don't remind me or don't, you know, don't bring that up. Like he's just kind of playing it off. But I, I now look at it once I've seen the whole scene is maybe that's part of that's why I call it good cop, bad cop. Like both participants, I think, uh, were in on the cell. Uh, they were just playing different roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like good improv. Where, yeah, you know, exactly. somebody's throwing out a suggestion and you got to just kind of go with it. It's like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's go over there. I'm, I'm remembering uh, fondly, Rob, your figure skating career. I forgot that you did that. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. I didn't think you were going to bring that up. Yeah, well, you know, it's just it, it ties right in here because you were like the vet that came out and did that at the World Championships that year. And you had a different name then, too. What was your name? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Triple, I'm kidding. <laughs> triple Lutzingus. Triple, triple Lutzingus. I love it. Yeah, it's a perfect New York themed name for yes. you. I forgot about that. Yes. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So you can imagine uh, Howard and, and this is a thing. Howard and Chuck have been together for a pretty long time. I mean, we hear in this episode again, Howard's father being mentioned and how Howard's father was the original H. Uh, that's why it's Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill. But the Chuck was McGill and that Howard's father and Chuck were probably peers. But you imagine that Howard and Chuck have probably run this sort of song and dance before uh, or very similar that the meetings that Howard has with clients. Chuck used to sit in on those. I'm imagining, especially new clients. And so I think their rhythms and the ways that they can kind of work these people, they're used to this. This is this is old. Uh, this is a soft shoe for them. This is old hat. This is something they've done before. Well, can we go back to Howard a little bit? Because that I felt like that Howard came off for a moment like kind of a good guy when Kim went in to go and have that conversation with him. And I thought he came across as very human when she told him he's like, oh, what are you going to Schweiger? And no, no, I'm going to go out on my own. He's like, oh, really? Like, I always wish I I did that. And I had some regrets about not doing that. But I listened to my dad. And that's really great that you're doing that. And it seemed like really for a second that, boy, maybe he was just pissed because she was going to the competition. But then he turned out to still be a douche. Yeah. And and that it's so weird because... He has these moments where he is totally human, where he says to Jimmy, I always believed in you, Charlie Hustle, uh, and he's really nice. And then he has other moments where, like he tells Kim, like, you'll have plenty to focus on in Doc Review. I'm going to have somebody else make those calls or set the team up, uh, where he's a total horrible person. And you have to wonder what's going on with Howard Hamlin. But then my brain kicks in, Rob, and I think, oh, he's a big law name partner. Of course, he's going to be highly functioning. Like he's going to be this kind of person who can turn it on and turn it off at a moment's notice uh, where maybe he's human on some level, but he's also largely inhuman because of the business. I thought that was a true moment of vulnerability uh, that he showed Kim when he talked about how I, w- I wanted to go out and change the world. My dad talked me into this. 
well, I suppose things work out how they're supposed to. In other words, like I, I'm, I'm going to pretend or, or represent that I have no regrets, even though there was some sense that there might be some regret there. And he even said, I envy you. So he's this kind of guy that he has that at his core, but he also is part of this system that doesn't really encourage that, doesn't really welcome it, doesn't really allow it. Uh, and so he has to be the sort of Terminator robot that he is most of the time. Okay, so all of this ends up leading to Kim losing the Mesa Verde Bank back to HHM, which then sends Jimmy into this big plan that he executes at the end of the episode where he goes into the copy store with the X-Acto knife and he's making up all of these copies and changing the addresses from 1261 to 1216. But Antonio, could you drill down and tell us what exactly is he doing here? Yeah, I don't know exactly how it will manifest or 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 if it does play out negatively where that will go. But I will say, if you'll recall, when Howard comes to Chuck's house to deliver the news, we lost Mesa Verde. Howard thinks it's Ernesto, the law clerk from HHM, who's come to deliver him some important files on Mesa Verde because, quote, they have a filing coming up. Okay, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is Mesa Verde has hired HHM for the specific purpose in helping them with an expansion project. Uh, That is the very sole purpose part of their case. When banks expand and and open up new branches and do things like that, there's a whole lot that goes on with a lot of the federal agencies that regulate banks where they have to. and, And Chuck talks a little bit about this in his I'm so old pitch. He talks about all the things that can go wrong when you expand a branch and some of the things that they have to make sure that they're complying with uh, filing of documents that have to be done correctly and accurately and so forth and so on. seems clear to me that the number jumble, if you will, that is that Jimmy sets up is just going to make HHM screw up the filing in Mm -hmm. some way. Uh, And that some of those filings that are that, you know, and there's 13 pages of documents AMC put on the story sync app that you can link from uh, the website as well uh, from better call Saul's website. You can get there. There, it's just a bunch of formulaic documents that are, you know, filing type documents for this kind of bank expansion. That, that's the project. And it's all these related documents to that bank expansion. And so it's just going to make HHM look bad. It's really going to reinforce, I think, some of the things that Chuck was sort of soft selling in his kind of soft sell approach, where he's like, we're so old and, you know, we, we you get burned out and you, you start to see the same things over and over. And he's trying to sell that as their experience. Experience, that'd be so good because they're so familiar with this stuff. But I think you could also read that negatively. Like they're so disengaged and they're a big law firm. And keep in mind, whether Jimmy knows it or not, it plays right into the beautiful pitch that Kim made to Mesa Verde, where it seems like she won them. Like it seems like she won them from HHM, where she talks about how, you know, you get a, a tailored suit uh, because you want that kind of thing that fits you perfectly. If I'm your lawyer, I'm going to be, you're my only client. I'm going to be all over everything. And you got to feel like if HHM screws something like a number up, Mesa Verde is going to say, God, Kim wouldn't have screwed that up. She, she would have double and triple checked her work because we're her only thing. So I think that that's that's the goal, but it doesn't seem to me like it's going to work. I don't know. Okay, so I pause the TV while one of the letters are up there. I know they're on the story sync also, but I got a pretty good screenshot of the the first letter that Jimmy works on. Okay. But to me, I don't know if this is going to be the plan is that, oh, look what HHM screwed up because like this first letter that he's working on, 
This is a letter from a J. Nico, or it is a letter to a J. Nico of Nico Architects uh, from B. Rogers, the city planner. So okay. it's it's not a letter that's coming from HHM or even the bank. It's some sort of a correspondence between the architects who were going to be building. You know, it's a letter to the architects from the city planner. And, you know, the subject line is construction document submittal requirements for building permits for Mesa Verde Bank and Trust Branch at 1216 uh, Rosella Drive, Scottsdale, Arizona. So I almost wonder if he is sabotaging the actual bank expansion more so than just the legal case. I think the two go hand in hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think they do because I think what he's doing, because he just, you're right, he changes basic, very formulaic documents that aren't HHM originated documents. But the one thing that he's done is he's kept consistent on all these documents, the incorrect address. He swapped them all on everything, even down to the blueprints for the, uh, for the expansion. He's, he's swapped the six and the one. And so if Chuck is filing you know, formal papers, he's going to input the wrong address because he's going to take it from every single paper that he has with the address on it that Jimmy has switched. So it looked like what Jimmy did is he went through all of Chuck's paperwork. He took, he cherry picked the documents from each one that had the address on it that he could switch. He then switched it on all those documents replace them all so that they all have the wrong address. So now if Chuck goes to fill out any paperwork and uses any of those documents for reference, he's going to have the wrong address. Why I don't think it will work is A, that those can't be the only documents that HHM has. They're just the ones that are at Chuck's house. So the the consistent inconsistency will become clear immediately. And B, it's not the kind of thing where that that's that sort of thing isn't easy to just like if they are all wrong, you're gonna say all those people made a typo, the same typo all those different people, like you're pointing out, the city planner and all these things? No, it seems way more likely that someone sabotaged them. And Chuck knows that Jimmy was in his house when he woke up. He's going to put two and two together, in my opinion. So you feel like that this is definitely going to lead to Jimmy getting busted? Yeah, directly or indirectly. Like, I, I there's no, what, what's the smoking gun? That guy that was high as a kite that was in the the uh, the copy shop? I mean, that guy's not going to pick anybody out of the lineup. That guy was high. Oh, come on. We, we smell our own, Rob. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I've just, I've seen that look before. Let's put it that way. That guy was high. Guy? As, yeah, he's high as balls. There's like a lot that of guy, toner in there. Well, I know. Believe me, I know. <laughs> like that is, uh, that's a good reason to have that job. No, uh, I do think that that guy was just playing totally bored, totally disinterested, like indefinitely, most likely high. Okay. It's a boring <laughs> job in the copy store. Hey, the only I'm, not, copy guy. I'm not blaming the guy. Uh, I'm just saying, like, I think that that was the, uh, that was the vibe the guy was giving off. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying he was holding or anything and I'm not, I'm not making moral, cho- you know, conclusions about his choices, but I really think that that guy was supposed to play like totally not into it, totally disinterested. Like, you know, our best copier, like it's just this guy. So that's your star witness in the, the trial of Jimmy McGill. If this all gets found, I don't even know it's that co- that copy shop rob like yeah how do they even know chuck should be like there's only one copy shop that's open at that time of night mm-hmm. so who knows I, I i have a feeling this is we had a tweet uh from uh from random nando who basically said like is this kinko's guy going to be a plot point now so i just think this is going to come back uh, and it doesn't it just seems like it, it's not going to work out well for jimmy 
Right, but then what is the fallout from this where, let's say, Jimmy gets busted and then does Chuck say, I knew it, you you messed with my copies. And then does Howard call up Kim and say, hey, your boyfriend really screwed things like, and then does Kim get mad at Jimmy? I mean, it seems like the stakes so far are not incredibly dangerous yet. I mean, this is a client that she does not have. It's a client she's only trying to win back other than, you know, Chuck gets really mad at Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy does not work for HHM. So what are the stakes here? Are there legal consequences that Jimmy could be on the hook for here? And or Kim? Yeah, I think there are for Jimmy. I don't think there are for Kim. But I think if you talk about consequences, you have to think about the context of the entire season. You can't overlook the fact that Jimmy and Kim have kind of gone back and forth about these sort of uh, Jimmy's Jim canery, if you will, that which is terrible. Uh, but the chicanery that's going on on Jimmy's end, that sort of thing has happened already. And it's it's affected Kim negatively with the, the, the document review thing where Jimmy does not tell Kim that the commercial didn't get approved. So Kim doesn't have the opportunity to give him on the notice. There is also. Jimmy telling Kim about the uh, the squat cobbler and how she doesn't want to hear about this sort of thing anymore. And she knows that Jimmy McGill is kind of a bad guy. And then you have Jimmy writing the letter about Kim suing HHM and saying, I figured your way out. And Kim says, you don't save me. I save me. And so there's this constant story over the course of the whole season where that's the relationship between Jimmy and Kim, that they've been on the ropes a lot over these actions back and forth. And this is sort of the culmination when she has lost a client through no real fault of her own, just because Chuck fought a really good fight to keep them. uh, Jimmy's going to try to go to these underhanded tricks to get the client back to Kim. And really, if that did happen, if they came back to Kim, what kind of win is that for Kim? How's that going to make her feel Uh, that she only got the client back because Jimmy cheated and screwed something up? This is not what Kim wants. Kim wants to save Kim. Kim doesn't want Jimmy to save Kim, and she certainly doesn't want Jimmy to save her through lying or uh, chicanery or these kind of uh, manipulative acts. So you're right. The stakes in terms of like, are they going to go to jail? Are they going to get disbarred? Those are relatively low, although they could be really bad for Jimmy. Uh, But I think the stakes emotionally in the context of the season are very high. And do you think that Kim holds Jimmy responsible in any way that she only lost the client because Jimmy's brother got involved? Does she put two and two together with this? I didn't sense that. Uh, Did you sense that? I didn't sense that. No, not yet at this point. But do you think that that shoe could drop? No, but here's the thing. I think it dropped with Jimmy. I think that Jimmy sensed that. Uh, And Chuck kind of denied it. Chuck basically said, I only tried to win back a client that we were losing. Like I did this sort of thing for me and me alone, not to hurt you or to hurt Kim to hurt you. That's not what my goal was. But I don't know. Do you believe that? Do you believe Chuck did this completely just to keep Mesa Verde at HHM $225,000 worth of billings on retainer or whatever it was, quarter of a million? Uh, do you think that that's the reason that Chuck did this? Or did Chuck do it because Howard said, Kim's going, you know, out with your brother and he calls him Svengali. Like, oh, he's yeah. got this great power. It twice. Yeah, there's this. So the reason I asked this is the the episode's called Fifi. We haven't gotten to the point where we the scene of Fifi is that this fighter jet from the 1940s uh, and the veteran and all that. But there's a war theme that's going on in that scene and with the episode title. 
And I'm just wondering if you see this as a war between Chuck and Jimmy, where Kim is sort of an innocent bystander who is ultimately, unfortunately, a uh, just a kind of an innocent citizen victim in, in their kind of battle, and that this is a war that they're fighting, both fully realizing what the other one is doing. Did you sense that Howard was, or that, that Chuck was only going, you know, was really only going to go do the song and dance because Jimmy was involved with Kim? Is that why he got up and did it? Yeah, I don't even think that you could hypothesize. I mean, I think that is like very much what it is intended to be. I mean, the fact that they show Chuck the lengths that he's willing to go there. He's willing to sit there with the lights on and not have people get rid of their phones. Everything that has been established about Chuck and his character through two seasons, he was willing to just like let that all be just so he could spite Jimmy and Kim, who he believes is working with Jimmy. So to go to those lengths, like he doesn't care about, he hasn't cared about one other case they've ever had. Yeah, I completely agree. And so then the question is, is Jimmy only doing what he is doing to spite Chuck? Uh, And if so, yeah, he's doing, you think he's doing it also to help Kim? I think that he is doing it 100% to help Kim. I don't think he is really like spiting Chuck might be a distant, distant, distant second, but it's 100% for Kim. I mean, he says to her when they're looking at the dentist's office, like, oh my God, I love seeing you like this. I mean, mean, he is smitten with her. I think that that is really the thing that is exciting to him more so than, you know, screwing over Chuck. Yeah, and that was a great moment, by the way. Ray Seahorn just was crushing it on this episode, both in her pitch about the bespoke kind of service that she would provide and in that dentist office when that huge smile breaks out on her face. So good in that moment. And you can understand why Jimmy would love seeing her like that and why it would upset him that his personal war with his brother bled into something that caused harm to Kim. But he's not seeing the forest for the trees in that regard. Because that very personal war with his brother that caused harm to Kim, his actions in that war, even if they're in defense of her, are ultimately going to hurt her. Like I said, you don't save me, I save me. She's already said that to him, and she doesn't like it when he goes slipping, Jimmy, especially not when it blows back to her. And so I'm very concerned for the stakes, uh, as we're just talking about, of that particular thing going wrong they're not stakes i don't think that are going to professionally impact jimmy one way or the other we know he becomes saul goodman we know he stays a lawyer uh, but i think they are stakes that could really impact him personally Uh, and i think that that's the thing where it's very tough to watch kim talks about the being the custom fit suit or the tailored suit as opposed to the suit off the rack uh which is hhm uh antonio how do you buy your suits (laughs) <laughs> I buy them used, Rob. Used suits. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, you know, pick like here, here and there. Uh, there, you know, the, the bespoke suit is great. I mean, I can't, uh, I'm, I cannot say enough about how awesome it is to have somebody tailor make a suit for you. I've had it done one time uh, in my life, and it's uh, you know an old Italian tailor in Cincinnati who was a friend of the family. It was awesome. But I, it's so it's so expensive to live life that way. I can't live life that way, Rob. How about you? How do you buy your suits? Plaid? No, 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 no. <laughs> the last suit I bought was in 2000. It came for, I don't know if it was for free or I had like some sort of a discount because I had gotten, when I got married in 2010, um, that it was... Uh, did I say 2000 or 2010? You said 2010. I'm 2010. For the suit, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 2010. 
And this was when I got married. And because I had my wedding party rented tuxedos through the men's warehouse, we got like a discount on a suit. And that's the, oh. that's the last suit I bought. It's the last suit you'll ever own. Uh, no, that is uh, that's it's foreboding. No, uh, <laughs> it's very it, ominous. I, yeah. Yeah, I, the first suit I ever owned, I bought at a store called Value City. Rob, are you familiar with Value City? I am not, but I think that I would probably also <laughs> buy a suit from Value City. It's like uh, if Ross dressed for less, like barely survived the apocalypse. Like, oh, man. That, that's what Value City was like or is like. I'm not even sure if they're still in business. But uh, yeah, one of the uh, Made in China specials they had there. Right still, I still have it. Still have it. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of that suit. But yeah, this is a... Uh, this is a thing. I think this is a great pitch from Kim. I really do. She's wearing her blue, Rob. Yes. That's her color. She's wearing her power color in this scene. Uh, she does a great job of pitching that to them. She has that, that kind of line where she says something to the effect of either you fit the jacket or the jacket fits you. And I think that that's a very interesting line in light of her relationship with Jimmy. I'm not sure uh, if, if, let's say, Jimmy's the jacket in that scenario. Uh, I think Kim's getting worn completely. And I think that that's that, you know, the jacket is fitting her like she's not fitting the jacket. And I think that that's that's the really difficult part is the things that we've seen her have fun with Jimmy at play with the cons that they've run. And we know that Jimmy brings out some good things in her. But we were talking last week on this podcast about how I really feel personally that Jimmy is so bad for Kim uh, that mm-hmm. he's making her make bad decisions and pushing her in bad directions. I'm not sure. Did you get a read that Howard sensed that at all in that when she resigned that Howard was basically like, I know you're making a bad decision, but I want to let you do it. Is, did you have any read of that at all from Howard or am I reading that into it? No, I don't think so. I mean, if anything, I think that go back to the scene where it was Chuck and Kim together when he talked about, you know, the 14, thousand dollars that was missing from the till i feel like that was chuck's warning to kim of stay away from jimmy he's bad news and that was maybe to her sort of the warning and for chuck where then she where she did not heed his warning then the gloves were off he didn't feel bad about what he did to her yeah i think that's probably right and i think that you know you you point out combine that with the fact that howard does not accurately represent to Chuck exactly what the arrangement is. He, in fact, lets it be represented in the most dangerous looking way to Kim. He doesn't say she's smart enough to have separated out her practice. She's only doing it to share expenses so that she can save money. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. And that does not present Kim in the light that would be most appealing to Chuck. It makes her seem like she's fully in league with Jimmy. And by calling Jimmy Svengali, I think Chuck sees her as being warned by Jimmy, that Jimmy is, uh, controlling her, that the whole Svengali reference is a reference to, you know, somebody who controls, who is like a puppet master. And that is, I think, what, what Chuck sees Jimmy as with regard to his, Jimmy's relationship with Kim. Uh, and that's really tough. I, I just don't, I mean, I don't I don't really like that look for Jimmy because I don't necessarily feel like he's doing that willingly, but I do feel like he's doing it negligently. And I think that that's that's a really difficult thing to realize. At the end of the episode, there's a moment where Chuck says to Jimmy, hey, you know, I really appreciate you staying here with me all night. I would have done the same for you. Is that a genuine moment from Chuck to Jimmy? This was a question on Story Sync tonight of 
was this that, you know, did uh, Jimmy feel bad after Chuck said that? Or is, you know, Jimmy just not even caring about what Chuck is saying? He's such a jerk, Chuck. I just, the Michael McKean is great because he can play it so that he can say a line like that. And you're really not sure uh, whether or not he's being sincere or not, or whether he's being just kind of an asshole. And he is, he's so good at trending both sides of that line. I read that uh, as as like mock sincerity like i think that if the chips were down chuck probably would be there for jimmy he was there for jimmy when the sunroof was up uh and jimmy had the uh, the chips were down there uh, and the chicago sunroof came into play so he was there for him at that time but i don't know if chuck would be there for jimmy in a similar circumstance i can see J- chuck totally saying this is a load of garbage what you're doing is manipulative you don't have a real condition this is nonsense i don't believe it if chuck had never had that condition i can see him saying that to jimmy for sure what about you i think that there might be something about chuck where i think he needs jimmy to need him like i think at any point where it looks like jimmy's getting his own thing going on that's when you know chuck throws him under the bus or sort of like uh you know really subverts what he's trying to do like i think that chuck likes having something over jimmy at all times and doesn't want jimmy to have his own thing up and running yeah he likes being the smart one he likes being the successful one he likes being the lawyer he likes being the master of the law he likes being all those things so we've we've seen flashbacks where when jimmy's passing the bar chuck is really taken aback and you can tell not that thrilled with it. And then we find out, of course, that, that he really doesn't want Jimmy to be a lawyer for various reasons. But on the same, on the, in the same frame, he wanted Jimmy to be successful. He wanted him to make something of his life. Why should Chuck get to put limiters on that? So it isn't just that Chuck has some protection against the world. He wants to protect the world from Jimmy. I think there's a lot of jealousy that goes on there. I think you're right. Chuck wants to be the one in, in, in the, he's the older brother. So he wants to act like the older brother. He doesn't want the younger brother to have more success than he does. And I think that that's, always been a problem between the two of them. I still don't know that we know fully the genesis of the jealousy between Chuck and Jimmy, but there's a, there's bucket loads coming from Chuck's end for sure. You know, we haven't talked about with Jimmy other than the metaphor that you made about the war of this scene with Jimmy going to go and shoot the scene with his friend that he hired, the old guy who he hired as the <laughs> war hero on the army base. Uh, but You know, I would say I have no idea what this scene is doing in this episode, but the episode title is Fifi, which is the name of the plane. So, Antonio, I'm really struggling here to understand what's going on. Like I said, I just think there's a lot of war imagery. I think Jimmy and Chuck are at war. And I think that that is that's the kind of overarching connection to the episode in general that Chuck and Jimmy are. are, are, It's kind of a cold war, mind you, like they're taking actions against people that aren't necessarily that each other, that they're taking actions against Kim, the loved one or targets they know will hurt. I think that there's some degree of that going on. But it is a war nonetheless. I think that, that we've seen that kind of developing over the course of this season. First, it was Chuck coming at Jimmy's involvement with Sandpiper Case and Jimmy's involvement at Davis and Maine, showing up at the meetings, calling Jimmy out for the solicitation, doing those sorts of things in front of other people. They are at war. There's a cold war going on between the two of them, for sure. And so I think the war metaphor is there. I also think the scene, I mean, my read in this is that Jimmy has, this is now the second episode where we've seen the film students uh, show up in the last two episodes. We've seen them kind of popping around where Jimmy is clearly shooting a commercial. 
for his maybe his first Better Call Saul commercial or his first really over-the-top Jimmy McGill commercial. It's not going to say Better Call Saul, but it's certainly going to seem like that. And I think that he's going to use American imagery. It seems like, imagine you're looking up into this thing and he's getting the shot and all that. I think by season's end, we are going to see our first Jimmy McGill commercial. And it's going to have a lot of the things that we've seen so far uh, it kind of play out. So I think this scene is important. Rather than shoot the commercial in one episode, we're going to get the reveal of the commercial in like maybe episode episode 10 and we're going to have one more kind of shooting moment next episode or maybe we're going to have another shooting moment next episode and have the commercial next episode but i think this scene is in there for the uh for the commercial setup i also thought i was cracking up rob were you not laughing really hard at this it was scene? a very funny scene yeah the, the 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 previous crime the the way jimmy knows the old guy that's great and that guy that old guy is hilarious insisting that it be japan and not nazis that he he's thinking about with his motivation in this 10 second shot for this commercial that they're shooting guerrilla style on an air force base it's really funny i just laughed so hard and so i think the the scene's also in there just to add levity to the episode just for the comic relief okay so we'll see where that goes i do agree i think that probably sometime in episode 10 we're going to see the fully formed commercial but what is that how is that going to pay off with anything that's going on like there's somebody where jimmy is like sneaking around and then somebody is able to recognize like oh yeah that's the guy on the commercial uh and that's sort of like you know he blows his cover in some way i don't know exactly how this is tying into everything else that's going on yeah i don't know either it could be the culmination it could be jimmy and kim have a huge blow up and they're not really on the same page and he's not been telling her about this commercial and she sees it and that to her like we're through like i i this i don't want to even share services with you i mean as far as i know the paperwork's not signed on the business yet they're not in those dentist chairs yet rob and so they're not really fully on board with this idea they could still back out so could seeing jimmy's commercial be the thing that makes kim say what am i doing like why am i associating with you either personally or professionally this is so over the top and so insane and it makes me embarrassed as a lawyer i mean speaking as a lawyer rob you i see some of these lawyer commercials i'm like oh my gosh like people are going to think of me negatively because of what this jagoff is doing so uh i think that kim could look at jimmy's commercial and think the same thing let's start to talk about the guy in the other dentist chair and let's talk about mike and his week and i know that mike <laughs> uh did not end up being in this scene but we have to talk about this opening scene because i don't know what the significance of any of it was but it was so damn impressive the truck coming across the border uh and that one tracking shot through that whole scene was really really incredible yeah that it really is and there's it evokes there it's very evocative there is a orson welles film touch of evil by the way another poster i have hanging on the wall at my house here rob we've talked about my rebecca poster i've also got a touch of evil poster that i bought in rome and i love that movie there's a couple different versions of it actually there's a version that was released by the studio and then there's a version that was re-released with was uh, what was orson welles kind of original desire and intent that the studio changed and but they the boat they both open with this great tracking shot that almost crosses the border in in a mexican border town and you you're kind of pulling in and out of the various cantinas that are there uh you're hearing different music and different versions and one of the versions has this great soundtrack that's very similar to the song that was playing a better call Saul tonight. Another version has just the natural sound 
from the scene, but it's very similar in the way the camera moves around and kind of takes you into this border setting. Uh, and Alan Sepinwall wrote and, and included a clip uh, in his review of this episode. So I highly encourage people to go check that out if they're not familiar. And if you're not familiar with Touch of Evil, definitely go check that movie out for sure. But I think this is just a great shot. That's an homage to all that. It's a it's one of the shots and sequences that there just aren't too many shows on TV that can pull it off. It's why a show like Better Call Saul even though it can be slow at times, and even though you may not like the pacing of it if you're watching it from time to time, there aren't too many shows that deliver things like this. It's really, truly beautiful and impressive. And I, I think it's going to tie into Mike, like you said. I think that – do you, are you reading that there's drugs being smuggled by the Salamancas in that truck? Well, I think it's certainly evocative of the original Breaking Bad, where we ended up seeing everything coming across with the uh, Los Poyos Hermanos are in the chicken uh, batter, they were transporting the meth. And it did seem like it's that same sort of truck. We had those same shape canisters that were in the truck. Now, I wasn't sure if then the contraband was the guy, considering that he stopped and picked up a gun. Like, I didn't know if they were saying, like, okay, we're trying to make you think it's the truck is coming across, but really it's the guy who's stopping and then grabbing a gun on the way over there. Or then we saw that truck pulling into the garage. Maybe there is some sort of contraband there for uh, Salamanca. Yeah, I'm, I'm, there's got to be some way that they're they're getting their product, right? And I think it's funny that the gun is in the U.S., <laughs> that he has to cross the border into the U.S. before he can pick his gun up. But I think the fact that he does pick the gun up shows you that it's a lot more nefarious than just uh, frozen treats that are in the truck. Uh, the popsicle sticks that are there right next to the gun drop mm-hmm. shows that this is the sort of thing that he's done maybe a couple dozen times already. Uh, and, and recently enough that he's marked it off there in the same spot every time, the same routine every time. So, so this seems to be a routine shipment. It's going right to the Salamanca's place that Mike is watching. And Mike, we see, is making what ultimately amounts to being a kind of a crude version of a stop stick. Something you'd throw on the ground, uh, drag across the uh, the road, and blow up a tire on a car. And so the question, I think, becomes... Stop stick. Wow. Yeah, well, stop stick. You've never interacted with a stop stick, Rob? I have not. Oh, I thought there was, it, was, it was freeway chase after freeway chase out there in California. No, no. Oh, that's just because I've watched People vs. OJ episode two like eight that's times. A, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he's making the stop sticks. Uh, he's in, he's involved his granddaughter in the making of these stop yeah. sticks. This is a horrible thing he's done. She's an uh, accomplice now. She is an accomplice. She's got a juvie record already, basically. This is a bad deal. But he's making some stop sticks, it looks like. I think he's going to throw these or, or set them up so that he blows a car tire. The question for me, ultimately, is, is Mike going to hijack a shipment and find some way to offload the product and make a bunch of money, which is certainly one option. Or is Mike going to blow up the car of Hector Salamanca and do something more untoward in that regard? And I think that that's a fair question as well. He, you, because we see him with the binoculars putting eyes on the car that's carrying Hector around. And more and more than one occasion, he's looked at this car. He sees the trunk of it. He gets the license number. He writes it down. So he's taking very close notes of not only the goings on, the ins and the outs with the truck coming into that place, but also the car that's ferreting Hector around. So the question is, 
Is he going to is he going to take action against Hector or is he going to steal their drugs? And I'm not sure. Do you have any hot takes on this, Rob? I don't know if I have any hot takes. Uh, one thing I did notice that I thought was pretty interesting was the popsicle and the popsicle stick that the driver of the van it ends up. He puts it into the dirt and I felt like there's a close up shot of the popsicle stick, uh, which says, and I'm going to butcher the Spanish here, but, uh, de nuestra familia la suya, which loosely translates to from our family to yours. And I did feel Mm. like that this line or these words that there was a close up on, does that mean anything to you? Yeah, I think that that was what was written on the side of the truck too, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, What's funny is Nestra or Nuestra Familia, and I'm butchering it as well. I think that that's a gang, isn't it? Like, I'm pretty sure that that's a, I've heard that on the TV show before. Like, I'm not sure if it was Sons of Anarchy or like, uh, or maybe it was like Orange is the New Black or something. I think it's a prison gang. Uh, and so I don't know if there's an intention to make that, that kind of connection there. Uh, but I've heard that yeah. name before. Well, for sure. Uh, again, according to uh, Wikipedia, it's Spanish for our family. So, yeah. I mean, it seems like that that might be a common thing for that, you know, to name some sort of a gang that. But I'm not sure if that this is if we're introducing that specific gang. Uh, but I'm wondering if is the family the Salamancas? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the family, right? Like we're both Italian, like the family that is a, is very kind of loosely connected term to the mafia. And you, you, you hear that all the time. And so the question, I guess, is like, uh, is this sort of it's not an on the nose thing. I agree. I don't think they're introducing this direct gang. But I think saying, you know, our family or uh, th- this kind of thing, I do think that that's that's part of it. And keep in mind, the Salamanca family is a family. We have the uncle, uh, Hector. We have the nephew, Tuca. We have these cousins that are in play. We have these other just people that it is a family organization that they've got going on. Uh, Nacho's kind of the outsider, it seems, in that family. I don't sense that he's related in any way. Uh, and so Mike's kind of introduction was through this outsider. And I, I don't know if Mike, I, I don't know what, what I do know is that the threat to Mike's family that Hector made is probably why Mike is really acting like this. If you'll recall, and, and, and if, if you don't, it was shown at the previously on Better Call Saul at the beginning of this episode. Hector threatened Mike's family. So I can just make one phone call and your, your granddaughter and your daughter-in-law. And he basically implies like, I know who they are. I can take them out at any time. I can get eyes on them. So the point is Mike can move Stacy into whatever neighborhood he wants. As long as that threat is still around and looming over his head, I don't know that he's ever going to feel like they're safe. And what, regardless of what she wants or how she feels, I think Mike actually knows an acute, like existing threat to Stacy and Kaylee that Stacy has no concept of. And that's why Mike's doing all this. The question is like, is that going to be something that is Mike going to take a full measure here? Is he going to try to take them out or is he just going to steal their drugs, uh, get them kind of angry at somebody else? Uh, and is he going to offload them and, and use the money to pay for the house? It seems to me like the former is more likely. I think a physical confrontation is coming. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes. That I mean, you did see just Mike is planning something. We're not really yep. privy to what he's doing. And it did seem like he could just walk away from this whole Salamanca thing if he wanted to right now. Can Mike leave well enough alone? 
Yeah, that I, we had a we had a tweet uh, with that question. I think uh, from uh, from from maybe it was from Brendan Fitzpatrick, and basically said uh, that you know that could, could, you know Mike could have Mike could have just walked away. Like, is he? He said the exact quote from Brendan was, "Does it feel like Mike is only snooping around Salamanca to advance the plot, not for actual character reasons?" And like I'm saying, I I really think that that knowing that. Hector Salamanca knows about Kaylee and Stacy is enough to put Mike on tilt here. And the question is, is it full tilt? Is he only going to do things full tilt, Rob? Uh, <laughs> he doesn't like to do things half tilt. Well, you don't want to do half tilt. We saw what happened with half tilt. Got him in a lot of trouble. So is he, is he going to be full tilt or not? And I think that the point is, I, it's not about leaving well enough alone. I think Mike doesn't feel well enough because I think that the fact that these guys know about Kaylee and Stacy and have come directly to threaten them is enough to make Mike feel like, okay, this is bad news. Like I have to do something to these guys in order to reassert dominance or protect my family, even if it means taking them all out. Uh, I don't know. I have a question for you. This is to me, not a very breaking bad style kind of thing. There's one big caper uh, in breaking bad that really is one whole episode. That is, what is this guy doing? He wants to get this other guy. Uh, and, and it's in season four. I'm, I'm trying not to spoil this huge moment for people that haven't watched the show. But th- it ultimately culminates in a caper that really is one episode long. And Mike's, ep- Mike's caper here is taking place over at least three episodes. Are you, are you liking the kind of slower-paced storytelling of Mike's caper? Or would you rather see a whole episode where we see Mike first watching them, then we see Mike making the hose, then we see whatever the next step is, then we see the culmination? Or would you, are you happy seeing this sparsed out over four episodes? You know, I have to say, I thought that the Mike story was kind of slow. And usually I feel like that Mike is really where the excitement comes from. But I kind of felt like these were just sort of beats in a longer story. And I, you know, you had the reveal at the end of the episode where, Oh, Mike's putting nails in a garden hose. I feel like that's an act break and not an episode ender. Yeah. And that's my, that's my point. I think you're right that the Mike stuff has always been the kind of more faster paced, lively, like, Oh my gosh, this is action packed stuff. And Mike is kind of, this story is playing out very slowly. I mean, last episode, we just got a, what we got the shot of him watching them. And that was really all that was, you know, being added to this particular thing. Now we see him making a weapon uh, and still watching them and taking notes on their cars and their comings and goings. And the weapon seems to be car based. I, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, what the ultimate playout's going to be. Like I said, hijacking or coming right at them. I just don't know how that's all going to play out. I guess I'm fine with it occurring over a period of episodes, but you're right. When you do it that way, then your big end of episode moment is Mike putting nails in a hose. Yeah. And I think when you just say it like that, it doesn't sound that impressive. Maybe at the end of the season, we're going to look back and be like, yeah, that was good. Four episodes, it built up. The payoff was worth it. It was great. It just is a very kind of counter to Breaking Bad style storytelling. And I'm just not sure ultimately whether the juice will be worth the squeeze. Yeah, I think you probably in this episode, I know you want to give us some Mike stuff, you know, that really is what's tying this thing to Breaking Bad at this point, because his story has so many more connections than the Jimmy story. I felt you could have ended on Jimmy and Chuck this week. Yeah, I think that you're probably right. I think you could have ended with that that particular scene uh, where where Jimmy kind of has gone and done all the things and 
Chuck says, I would have done the same for you. Uh, and maybe Jimmy looks like, oh, or, you know, I'm, I'm sad now that I screwed you over or mm-hmm. I'm happy that I screwed you over. And that's the end of the episode. But instead, we get those both of those scenes with Mike and not only drilling the holes, but then we see him watching his girl Friday on TV, just kind of an old uh, you know, movie and Mike is, is filling the holes with nails. It's just like very sort of methodically going about making implements of destruction. So where does that play out? Who knows? Okay. Uh, what else from the Mike storyline this week? I think that's, I mean, I think that's really it. I think at this point, the question marks lie in what's the end game? Is he going to blow up that? Is he going to try to take out Hector or is he going to try to take their drugs? And I feel like if, if I'm in the audience, I, it's a 50 50 to me. I don't know how everyone else is feeling. I, I'm love to hear the comments at postshowrecaps.com on the page for this particular episode. But for me, it's 50 50. Are you leaning one direction or the other? On. If he's taking out the, if, if, if it, let's say he's using those to take out a car, is he taking out the drug car or is he taking out the, the Hector car? Boy, you know, the Hector car has been seen so prominently. I wonder if he's going to just try to get the jump on the Hector car. Yeah, maybe. I mean, on the other hand, the drug car was seen very prominently. Uh, it was the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. We saw the guy picking up the gun. Uh, we saw it again later in the episode. So, I don't know. Mike has seen the car. He can probably put two and two together on what's going on with that in terms of a regular delivery and when Hector shows up. Uh, but he did see the trunk of Hector's car. I mean, he's put two and two together on both ends of it. So the question is, what kind of four does he want? Like, does he want the four that represents stealing the drugs from them and hurting their organization? Or does he want the four that represents hurting them as people? And the thing is, I just, Mike, Mike has been the guy who has said, like, you can't shoot a Salamanca. If you do, several more are going to pop up. So I really just don't see him going hard at at Hector Salamanca unless he's going to try to brace him. And I just don't think that's going to go well. So I really don't know what his end game is. But if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably the drugs. I don't think that's what people want. But I can see Mike taking this down, you know, bracing that guy for information, uh, maybe, or, or even killing that guy, uh, trying to steal the product and, and going from there. But that's going to require a lot more detective work. All right, we'll see. Antonio, what questions do we have from the audience tonight? We had uh, we had a lot of different ones, and uh, we actually had uh, you know we had we can uh, you can always send us questions bcs at postshowrecaps.com. We can get those during the week, or we can get them the night of the episode. Either way, yeah. So we had a question sent to us during the week from Milad Miamarian, and it basically says one thing I've seen a lot of reviewers missing is that Jimmy's dad said that fourteen thousand dollars was missing from the register. Not that he'd given away part of it to others, but that it was unaccounted for. Unless Jimmy's dad had dementia, then he should be aware of how much he's taking out of the register to help other people. So Malad's basically saying Jimmy took all 14K, that this isn't a thing where the, the dad was like, you know, maybe taking some and Jimmy was taking some. The Malad's basic point is that he's pretty sure or their Malad is pretty sure that Jimmy has taken all $14,000. My question for you coming out of this, Rob, Mm -hmm. we've kind of talked about this back and forth a lot. Does it matter ultimately if Jimmy took the 14K, if his dad took some of it, if Chuck is wrong, if Chuck is right? Does it really matter? To me, it seems like Chuck doesn't, 
it doesn't Chuck's not giving Jimmy any benefit of the doubt. And that's the important thing. Not necessarily ultimately who took all 14,000. Right. I don't think we're going to have another flashback where it turns out, well, Jimmy only took $3,000, but dad got swindled out of $11,000. So really, Jimmy's not as culpable as we originally thought. Like, I, I think that the Chuck story, I think pretty much can be taken as canon. I think that that's probably even if, you know, it turns Turns out that dad also got, you know, scammed or fleeced for a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. I don't think it really changes the punchline of the story, which is Jimmy took a lot of money out of dad's register. Yeah. And a lot was making the point that Jimmy's dad would have known how much business, you know, how much money he needed to keep his point. business running. So he wouldn't have given it all the way. I just think it it doesn't. All, to me, the, the fact of the matter is that Chuck has this thing with Jimmy where he sort of has blinders on that he can only see the negative in Jimmy, even though he can give him positive compliments. It doesn't seem like Jimmy ever gets the benefit of the doubt from Chuck. Uh, and I think that probably a lot of the time Jimmy doesn't deserve it. Uh, for example, when Chuck finds that newspaper in the crazy story in season one, probably the craziest thing that's happened in the episode, seeing the world through Chuck's point of view uh, with all the electricity when he goes out to steal his neighbor's paper, wearing that space blanket, looking like a true crazy person. Jimmy or Chuck knew right away that Jimmy was up to something. He, he was not giving him the benefit of the doubt for being honest about why that paper was missing. And he was right. He shouldn't have given him the benefit of the doubt. But mm-hmm. I, I just don't know. I, I, the, the only reason I bring it up here, because this episode is so much about the war between Chuck and Jimmy. And I just don't know that it ultimately matters why or or if either of them is ultimately correct. I think the reality is they both have big problems with each other. It isn't clear where the problems began. If it was Jimmy's conning ways, uh, we saw Jimmy at the beginning of that last episode as a kid, even knew how to sniff out a con and knew the word grift, uh, probably learning on the streets. Whereas his dad was like, how do you even know that word? You know, and so Jimmy's always been a little bit like that. And I don't think that was meant to be his origin story last week. And I don't know what the genesis was of the beef between Chuck and Jimmy. I think the only real point is it's there and it's real and that they will come at each other and hurt people that are dear to the other to get at the other person. I just don't know if Jimmy has always been that way with Chuck. It seems like Chuck has always been seeking to keep Jimmy down. I'm not sure that it's gone both ways, but it is certainly going that way now. So I think it's fascinating because I just don't think, I think we've, we've got another question here, which I laughed about. Uh, and I think you favored it on Twitter when it was sent over. Uh, but Brendan Fitzpatrick also wanted to know uh, that, that, you know, do you think that, did you guys, Brendan's question was, do you guys think or maybe hope a little that Chuck would be dead on the couch when Jimmy got back from copying? And we had a similar question from Bobby Garcia. He said, what are the betting odds that Chuck doesn't make it past the season finale? And I guess I'm wondering, do you think we're going to continue to tell this story of Chuck and Jimmy or is, or is it ending this season, Rob? I don't think that Chuck is going anywhere this season. I mean, I kind of feel like that that's sort of the backbone of the show right now sort of like there's two main relationships there is jimmy and kim and jimmy and chuck i'd be very surprised if we lost chuck at this point in the series i think that maybe chuck does not seem to be like we said with kim last week does not seem to be in the picture by the time we get to breaking bad I don't think he's going anywhere right now. Yeah, Jason Riotmaker had asked us, is Jimmy Chuck Douche's kryptonite? Uh, and I think Jason's gone full Walking Dead podcast, referring to him as Chuck Douche. Uh, but is is Jimmy Chuck's kryptonite? Is this is Jimmy going to put Chuck in bad positions as a result? Is, is Jimmy the one thing that this master lawyer can't master? Is that how you're reading it? 
Well, every time that Chuck has a bad attack, or a lot of the bad attacks have been predicated by Jimmy doing something that really makes Chuck upset in terms of what he's done as a lawyer. So every time he finds out about that, you know, Jimmy has like broken the law in some way or has abused his power in some way, that's when he's had one of his setbacks. Now, this week, the setback happens because he goes out into the office for so long. But I think that to some degree, I think that Jimmy's uh, misdeeds are a bit of a kryptonite to Chuck. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And I think he only goes back to the office this week because of the Mesa Verde thing. And I think we talked about in this podcast how we pretty much feel like the only reason he's going so all in on Mesa Verde is because he wants to get at Jimmy via Kim. And so, again, you could draw the line right there between Chuck and Jimmy and that being Chuck's kryptonite. And so if Jimmy wasn't involved, Chuck probably doesn't go work to the office to bust tail to get Mesa Verde back. And Chuck doesn't suffer his attack. And there, you know, that that is all that. We still don't know the million dollar question in the room, which is where did Chuck's condition originate? Is it something that Jimmy did? Was something that Jimmy was some action of Jimmy's the action that predicated the onset of the condition? I'm not sure if we'll find that out this season. That's a good moment for the show to save up. Uh, We could see that at the beginning of episode 10 if they wanted to give that to us and that would be a really good moment to give us in a season finale, but they could save it for another season as well. I will say if we get that in at the beginning of episode 10, wouldn't shock me if Chuck didn't survive the season. I wouldn't be shocked, but I agree with you generally that I think it makes sense for Chuck to survive the season because the Chuck Jimmy thing is is definitely as much of a backbone of the show as is Jimmy and Kim. So I I just don't think, and I don't think you're going to take Howard anywhere. I think you want these characters to still be on the show, whether they're primary or tertiary characters. I I still think you want them involved in the universe of the show. And if you take Chuck out, I don't know where Howard plays, but I just think that they're going to continue to be part of it. But I agree. I think Jimmy is a little bit of kryptonite for Chuck. All right, Rob, we have another question from the great Johnny D. Silvera. The greatest. The greatest, the greatest, the baddest Johnny D. Silvera. Uh, I think that was his boxing nickname, the baddest. Uh, Johnny wants to know, what's the significance of Kim and Jimmy's first office being a former dentist's office? Yeah, that's something I had thought about myself, but I did not come up with anything good. Antonio, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, you're really going to drill me, aren't you? Uh, I was- <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know what? That speaks to the worst Better Call Saul story sync question of the night. <laughs> yes, I love this segment. Which was it? The question was tonight, it was a poll question of Kim and Jimmy's new offices. I'm filling it or wouldn't be my first pick. Oh, boy. I'm filling it? Really? Yeah, they couldn't even go with two dentist puns. No, they couldn't even wouldn't. Be, well, a pick, a dental pick, right? But isn't that like P I K, like a water pick? I guess so. So like, like the hook tool that that's what they're going for there. Yeah, I think that yeah, something like that, or like a, I forget what a water pick is, but I think the water pick is that little, it's that little uh, like the water thing that they shoot the water into your mouth through. I think that's called a water pick, but it's P I K for sure. So who the heck knows, Rob? I, I don't know. I feel like we should. I feel like they need to hire us next year to write the stories. Thank. Well, you know, I think it's easier said than done. Like with The Walking Dead, I think that's more conducive to the story sync than maybe the Better Call Saul. It's fun. I enjoy it. I don't laugh. I don't. I can't tell you how many times I've been convicted or acquitted. I don't know if I've been what character I've been in any episode, uh, and the, the things don't work very well for me. But I think it's smart. I think I don't know too many other networks that are doing uh, second screen experience. Like I don't know that. any. 
Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a pretty interesting. It's a good idea. It's just yeah, sometimes it's like they're really idea. reaching for things. <laughs> it, Bre- the Brader Call Saul is great for it though because they're good, they're good about pointing out the connections not only to Breaking Bad but occasionally they'll point out a good callback to Better Call Saul. I think there was one tonight where Jimmy had uh, had previously represented a Breaking Bad character or had thought he was representing a Breaking Bad character for the same crime that he was rep- that he had represented the vet uh, for in this episode. Mm-hmm. So I won't say what it is, but uh, something you shouldn't do in public and maybe depending on your moral choices, shouldn't do in private. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's I, fine. As far as you think it's fine. We've yeah. got the Sesternino stamp of approval. Yeah. All right. We'll keep that in mind. I give it the thumbs up double barrel. Oh boy. Double barrel, huh? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Not thumbs down. No, no. Oh, thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just checking on the method. Uh, what I would say ultimately is that the dentist office, I don't think is meant to represent anything in terms of dentist versus lawyer. I think it's just meant to represent that it's not the best fit and that Jimmy isn't super sold on it. And Kim's just kind of like, let's do it. Let's do whatever. When she comes in and she's got Mesa Verde. And then when she's sitting outside the business, having lost Mesa Verde, she's basically saying, Art, do you still want to do the let's go solo thing at all? Not do you want to get this property, but is our idea even a good one? Or should I just go to Schweikert and Coakley? Like, so that is a, a very difficult thing for her. I don't think she's really thinking about this space. And I don't know. It's the same size. It's the same suite for dentists to share a practice, soundproof walls. It doesn't look like a good lawyer's office from the insider out. It looks like a dentist's office. So I think it's seen as a bad fit. Is it a better fit than the back room of a nail salon? You better believe it. Is it a better fit than a nice office with a window at HHM? Not really. And it's certainly not a better fit than the lovely office suite Jimmy was looking at last season. So I don't know. I think it's meant to represent like not the best fit for the two of them. But that may be because their idea is not the best fit for the two of them. And I think that the office is sort of meant to represent that in some ways. And also, I do think it's a very Jimmy thing where, and I'm not, this is not a Dave Matthews uh, take, but I do think it is a Jimmy thing that they end up in a place where you could totally imagine Saul working out of the dentist's office and calling it a law office. Sure. And in fact, I believe the building is a very bright shade of yellow, which is a real Jimmy color. You know, his car is yellow. The building is yellow. This is a place where Jimmy would feel at home. It is not a good fit for Kim. I I don't think that you would imagine Kim in some sort of place that is seemingly more professional. And she is jumping into this thing with both feet. And now she's, you know, hesitant. Should I go through with this? And I think that, you know, Jimmy is trying desperately to keep her in that world with him. Yeah, this is the whole you fit the jacket or the jacket fits you kind of thing that Kim talks about with the the idea of getting your suit tailored uh, specifically. Like this is something where this is the jacket kind of, uh, you, you know, this is this is the jacket in her not not really having the best relationship. This isn't you're right. This isn't the right fit for her, uh, but she's putting it on anyway or she's going to wear it, uh, even though it's not specifically the kind of thing that would be good for her. Uh, she's almost just buying this one right off the rack. And I think that that's difficult because she's given this big pitch about the value of bespoke or tailored service. And yet she's getting an office that is not at all tailored to lawyers, let alone tailored to the kind of lawyer that she is, uh, that, you know, people 
are rooting for her, that she's smart, she's capable, she's a really good salesperson, all of it. That's not who she is. She's not this dentist office kind of lawyer, even though you're right, Jimmy totally is. So I think that's a really good kind of representation of why Jimmy maybe isn't good for Kim, like I keep saying. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not a good and I, I'm not I feel bad. I feel like I'm a terrible friend to Jimmy, but I'm telling his girlfriend, like, this is she he's bad for you. Like you're this like is Chuck. not work. You're Chuck. Yeah, I really oh thanks, Rob. Thanks. Who does that make you, Howard? I'm Mike. <laughs> you're Mike. Oh, of course you're Mike. Of course you're Mike. I got it. Like I, I gotta tell you, Mike, uh, you should probably stay out of the sun. You're not looking too good these days. Uh, uh, just gotta you know. set up my sprinkler outside. <laughs> The the rhododendrons need watering down. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to water down the rhododendrons, too. I thought that was more of a different metaphor uh, that was in play there. Uh, I didn't realize that he meant I'm going to kill some people or steal narcotics. Uh, But, yeah, I can't wait to see how that all plays out. But, yeah, of course you're Mike. Of course you're Mike. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of course I'm Chuck. I feel great, Rob. Any other questions, Rob, before we end this beautiful me being Chuck? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that jumps out to me. I'm sure there's not. Yeah, I'm sure it all works out perfectly that we're going to end on this note. That's fine. All right. Well, let's put a final nail in this hose. So what's the hashtag? <laughs> uh, what do we got? Chuck Canary. That's the only one Chuck I wrote. Canary. Yeah. What, what, do you have any other suggestions? Nail mails. Nail mails. <laughs> we, didn't even, we didn't even get into that, but yeah, we'll put a nail in that hose for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Chuck Canary. Stop Chuck stick. Canary. Stop stick. Stop stick. Yes. This is uh this could work out really well. It's an effing stop stick, Rob. Like this is what we've got. So I'm really looking forward to that. I, I do like how they're setting it up over multiple episodes. It, it plays out really well. I think in, in the better call Saul universe to tell a story that could have been told on breaking bad in one episode to tell it over a series of episodes. So it's this looming and impending doom that you know will ultimately happen. That's sort of the theme of this whole series. Uh, the looming, and impending doom that you know is coming. So knowing that that's coming this season, hopefully, is a, is a great thing to look forward to. All right. Antonio, any final thoughts? Anything else? No, that was it, man. I'm going to go chuck myself to death. <sighs> now I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I might not be able to be on next week's podcast. Rob. Oh, yeah. I'm very afraid of electronics now. What about a tape recorder? Could you just re- record it and then maybe like FedEx me the cassette? Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to. Can you send an intern over? Can can somebody record? Do you have an intern? Is there somebody we can send? Do you have a law clerk? Do you have an Ernesto, Rob? Ernesto, yeah, sure. We'll send Ernesto right over. I did think it was fascinating, by the way. I, I don't know if you noticed this. When Chuck was getting the bad news about Kim from uh, from from Howard, did you hear the ticking clock metronome noise kind of pop up in the background there? You know, the ticking clock, I think, was a thing at Chuck's house. Yep. So I don't know. We had the metronome earlier in the season, almost giving him the middle finger in the shot, the constant beat back and forth. We heard the ticking clock in that scene. I just love that there's just this looming sort of drumbeat in Chuck's life that is Jimmy, uh, that is representative. Metronome. Yeah, the metronome, all of it. It's constantly beating in the background uh, that is is looming over, keeping time in every single instance that Chuck is kind of acting or reacting. There's always this thing that's keeping time and really kind of nagging at him. And I don't know if that's his jealousy for Jimmy, if it's Jimmy in general. But when Jimmy comes up and is mentioned here, all of a sudden you start hearing that noise. And I think it was present in the scene before that, but I really do think it was amplified after that. Uh, Worth checking out if anyone rewatches it, for sure. Yeah, and I didn't catch it 
from an audio perspective, but I do watch a lot of these shows with the closed captioning on and the closed captioning is like clock ticking. So it is important <laughs> enough to be in the closed captioning. Yes. Uh, and that's sometimes the closed caption person gets it all wrong. But a lot of the times, if they're including something, it's mega important. Like yeah. That, sometimes so. they get the uh, line of dialogue totally wrong. But I, as far as stage directions go, like, I feel yeah. like that that's always, uh, you know, important stuff. Yeah. And I, it is. I noticed it right after Howard said uh, she's pulling your resources with Jimmy. And then you hear like. He's a Svengali. He's a Svengali. That's what he is. So it's like, yeah. oh, all of a sudden, there he is, beating the time in, your, in the background of your mind. Like, you cannot escape this constant rhythm of the, the Jimmy McGill. So I don't know. I don't know what that metronome is or that, that clock ticking is, but I do think that it's present there. And I think that if we did a – I'd be interested to do kind of – Oh my gosh, Rob. I think I'm going to have to rewatch all these episodes. Okay, rewatch. The clock noises. Oh my God. <laughs> this is all it. Right. This is how I get myself into things. All right, we're going to end it here before all I get too much. Speaking more. of shows that you rewatch, uh, yes. this Friday, yes. Tony and I are going to be talking about the finale of The People vs. O.J. Simpson. It is a 10-hour show, which, Antonio, how many hours have you spent watching People vs. O.J. Simpson? Uh, I mean, being honest, if it's 10 hours, we're nine hours through. I'd say at a conservative estimate, 32, 33. <laughs> <laughs> truth right. hurts. The truth hurts, Rob. Yes. So one of the world's foremost people versus OJ Simpson experts will be joining me on most shows recapped this Friday to talk about everything that went on with the finale and answer your questions as well. Plus earlier uh, this past week, uh, we talked about the path uh, with Breaking Bad alumni Aaron Paul. Antonio, yeah, about that? That's a great, that's a great, I, I like that show. It's a great thing to look forward to every week on Hulu. Also, you watched multiple times. <laughs> I only watched one episode twice, but I did watch it more than once. That is fact. Yeah. So a lot going on on the poster recaps. Of course, the finale of The Walking Dead from this season. We had a lot to talk about there. Also, uh, Daredevil finale from the season two on Netflix. So a lot going on posterrecaps.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Go to posterrecaps.com slash iTunes or search for poster recaps in your favorite podcatcher. Also follow Antonio on Twitter. He's at AC Mazzaro. That's two Z's, one R. I'm at Rob Sesterino. A big shout out to Scott St. Pierre who edits the Better Call Saul podcast. Anything else? Scott is Batman. I love Scott. He does it every week bringing you this fine podcast. Looking forward to reading your comments on postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody.